What you're about to hear is an honest, unscripted conversation from an ordinary person with an extraordinary story. It contains mature themes and listener discretion is advised. For the purposes of understanding resilience and what it really takes to find our way from the bottom up, we delve into the lives of people and stories that are real. Through all of this, what would you say was the hardest time for you? I'd say the hardest time was a couple of years directly after the accident, from things such as having lost my whole family and then having my virginity taken and then being introduced to drugs, sleeping with this man for money. It got to the point where I despised myself. I had no self-respect and um, I was bitterly sad. Welcome to The Bottom Up Podcast, hosted by Chelsea Cunningham. This week, we're talking with Susan Berg, the sole survivor of an accident that took her family when she was just 15. After rebelling against the world and cheating death on more than one occasion, Susan is now tackling her fears head on as she prepares to swim the English Channel. From the many chapters of her life that demanded true survivor instinct, I begin our chat by asking about the day of the accident. I was 15 at the time. Uh, I was with my brother who was 16 and my parents. And we went out in the boat on a Sunday afternoon. It was late in the afternoon, about four o'clock when we went out. Um, was fishing for a couple of hours, having a good time. And then it was starting to get dark and, and Dad said it was time to head back towards, towards land. So uh, I was driving the boat and we were rocketing over the waves and all of a sudden the power cut on the boat. And my brother turned around and yelled, there's water in the boat. And he got a bucket and he, he was trying to bail the water out, but it was, it, it, the boat went down in less than 30 seconds. There was just no time. Um, we, as the boat was going down, actually, Dad said to jump out and we turned it over. So we turned it over and then we hung onto the hull as we tried to do up each other's life jackets. But the waves were getting big now and they were just pushing us off the boat. We'd keep trying to swim back, but it just got to the point where it was useless. So it was dark, there were no passing boats and the decision was made that we would swim towards land. Did you have any idea how far out you were from land? I didn't at the time. I've been advised it was about three and a half kilometres. Uh, and you could only see the silhouette of, of land by the time we started swimming. As soon as we started, my, my father got into difficulty. So my brother went to help dad, which mum didn't want him to. Mum wanted Bill to keep on going and, and to save himself, but he just said, no, dad needs my help. So he went to help dad and I, I told mum to keep up with me that you know we'd swim together. And just the further we kept going, or I was just getting further and further ahead. So after a while I said that I would go ahead for help. So I kept swimming, if you call it that. Um, it wasn't like proper freestyle or anything like that. We had like the life jacket and that was choking me. So I was using my hands to pull the life jacket down away from my throat uh, and was just kicking with my feet. So I was just moving forward that way. And after a while, mum, you know, mum and I would yell out to each other every few minutes. And then after a while, I'd say about an hour, I realised I hadn't heard from her for quite some time. And I turned around and it was just darkness. I couldn't see them, I couldn't hear them. So I kept swimming after a couple of hours. I got to a point where the water was getting more shallow, but I couldn't walk because it was too muddy. I would just sink down into mud. So I had to crawl. So on hands and knees, I'd, I'd count to 100 with each, um, 
each crawl forward and then after I got to 100 I'd turn around and put my back to the land and and push with my hands. So I was just turning over and over, counting to 100 each time. Finally got to what I thought was land but it wasn't, it was a sandbank. Um, again yelled out to mum, dad and Bill that there was a sandbank, if they could get there they could rest. Uh, I had to then get off the sandbank and there was another couple of hundred metres I'd say to get to land. And so I had to crawl again, swim, and then I got to more mud, but this time it was like quicksand. And um, it was just swallowing me, literally. And I was grabbing onto shrubs and sticks that were poking out in the mud, but they just snap off in my hands. I was absolutely terrified. The mud was up around, you know, getting towards my waist. And um, I knew it was, just, it was gonna swallow me yeah. if I didn't get through it. So I kept struggling through and eventually it started to get harder and harder and I did get to, to land. This whole time, what was going through your mind? What were you thinking? I've got to get help. And I, I got to land and I thought that, you know, there'd be houses and, and, and loads of people and shops and cars, but it wasn't, it was French Island. Um, yeah. And French Island used to be a prison island. It's still very remote. Exactly, and not many people live there because it is so remote. So what do you see when you finally hit land? Swamps. Um, it just, <laughs> bushland. Um, it was, there was nothing. And, so and it's what, dark, it's, yeah. you know, 10.30 at night or something. I had no idea which way to go, left or right. Luckily I went right and I would have been lost. That would yeah. have been done. So luckily I went right and I found a house within a few kilometres. If I hadn't found that particular house, there wasn't one for another 30 kilometres. How did the people inside react when they saw you? I knocked on the window, they came to the door. It was obvious where I'd come from. I had a life jacket on, I was covered in mud. So they took me in, Dr Forbes checked me to make sure that I was physically okay. And, um, and then he called the emergency services and went back down to the, the mangroves to see if he could see anything whilst his wife put me in the shower. And I just hopped in the shower and cropped. The next day, there has been some search effort overnight, is that right? Yeah, so the helicopter came and picked me up from the island and took me up over the bay to see if I could locate them, and, um, and I couldn't. And so they then took me back to the Hastings Police Station. They didn't find their bodies until the morning, and they found Mum first, her body had washed up on crawfish rocks, and then they found um, Dad and then Bill. Um, still floating in the water. You have two other sisters, how did they find out? They were there at the same time when we were told that, that their bodies had been recovered. You're only 15. What happens in the days and weeks immediately after the accident? The weeks following, I can't even begin to explain what it was like. It was, well first you're in shock. It's disbelief, it's, this isn't happening. This is a bad dream. Uh, it's a feeling of um, responsibility. I felt responsible for my family's death. I'd been the one that was driving the boat when it sank. I'd left them to go ahead for help. I couldn't locate them from the helicopter. And I was the one that lived while they all died. I just felt responsible. So I went on this huge path then of, of just self-destruction. I know from reading your book, there's a lot of media and public attention around you at this time. And you open your book 
with a letter you received. Do you remember what it said? Uh, yes, it was, um, you fucking bitch. Your brother went in aid to help your parents and you left them for dead, you little whore. Oh, how did that affect you? I already felt responsible, but to get that letter at the same time, because like, I've been getting so many beautiful ones and I was actually taking some comfort in the beautiful words that were written by people and words that were, you know, telling me about how much they loved my mother or loved my father or... Um, so to suddenly receive that one telling me that it was my fault, I, um... Yeah, I, I guess that just added to my feeling of responsibility. As a sole survivor, was guilt something you carried for a long time? Many years. Many years of guilt. And it's also that thing of no one, no one can relate to you. No one else has been through that situation. Um, I felt totally alone. Like, no one understood how I was feeling, what I was going through. It, it, an incredible feeling of, of loneliness and, and despair and... You know, all I wanted to do was go home. I just wanted to wake up and go home. A lot happens after the accident and life as you know it starts to unravel. So it was only possibly six or eight weeks after the accident that a very close family friend, I've called him Matthew in the book. He was 19, the son of a minister. We'd, we'd all grown up together. Anyway, one particular night, he, he basically just took my clothes off and and had sex with me. And I'd been brought up that you don't have sex until you're married. And then you're with the one partner for life. So this whole thing totally confused me. Um, and, and it continued on from there, but it continued on in terrible ways to the point that, you know, like one particular night, I said, no, no, I didn't want it to happen. And he just continued. He just, he wasn't gonna stop. My body ended up shutting down because it couldn't cope with all the stress and I was hospitalised because I couldn't urinate. My body just totally collapsed. So a lot of other things happen at this time as well. Can you tell us what else is contributing to your sense of loss and confusion? Within 12 months, it was my parents and my brother first. Two weeks later, I lost my grandmother. Then my uncle died and then my cousin drowned. So it was six family members two kittens and a goldfish. So I just felt in a way that anything I loved was gonna die. I felt like I had a jinx. You're being taken further away from the life you've known at this time. You know, in a previous life, dad's a doctor, mum's an avid churchgoer, but the men you're choosing aren't from this world. I think that the men I chose really reflects the way I felt about myself, which was not very good. Yeah. So I made bad decisions. Um, I was still the same age, 15 or 16, was introduced to a guy that I started dating and he introduced me to drugs, which meant then I was, you know, starting to take speed or smoke dope and, and things. It was just an absolute train wreck. Um, thankfully, I didn't continue along that path of drugs going into my future. I, you know, I was able to leave it behind as a teenager, thank goodness. Your financial situation's pretty shitty then too. Things get pretty dire. Tell us about the time you needed new shoes. So I was 16 at this point in time. Not long after mum and dad died, I, I couldn't sleep at night. I was having really bad nightmares. 
um, and I was too afraid to, to go to sleep. So I would force myself to stay awake all night and then I'd get to school and I'd fall asleep on the desk. So in the end, it was, it was decided that I would leave school early and I would go and start working. So I was working, however, finances still weren't great. I had to by now pay my own rent, bills, medical, whatever. And I just was, you know, financially struggling. So I literally had holes in my shoes that I was walking around in. I did go to a lawyer to see if we could have money from the um, estate released, but I was told that I couldn't, I couldn't get any access to it until I was 21. So um, in the end, I met uh, this, this, this woman who introduced me to men and, and I slept with the man a couple of times for money and, um, and went and bought shoes. Do you know, Susan, it strikes me that when you find yourself in a ditch, you still seem to have a sense of direction and a compass on life through all of this. What would you attribute this to? Thank goodness. I'd say that's possibly my upbringing with, you know, fabulous parents that did make good decisions. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my parents were fantastic. They were just really, I, I've never known someone that was so at peace within themselves as my mother. And she used to meditate every morning. I'm sure that that was the, um, the key to her calmness, her happiness. Uh, she knew who she was as a person. She celebrated other people, loved other people. You'd never hear a bad word come out of her mouth. Um, they were just beautiful, well-grounded people. I lost myself for a long time and, and who I was and, as I said, made many, many bad decisions. I'm sure I'll still make a few in my future, but, you know, that's life, right? Yeah, yeah. So your next relationship's not great either, Susan, but it does give you your beautiful son. Well, yes, and you know what? I'm grateful for that. And I wouldn't change it for the fact that I have my son who is, you know, my most precious person in this world. Um, but he was abusive and the emotional abuse was worse than the physical. The telling you how you're no good and you're ugly and, and just horrible things. And he would accuse me of, of flirting with men or things that just weren't going on. It was absolutely bizarre. But one of the things he did was mortgage my property. So I, with the inheritance that my parents left me, I bought a, a, a unit and uh, that was kind of my safety. I just had my son William, got home from hospital, been home for four days, and he came into the bedroom and said, can you quickly sign these papers? I've got to race off to work. So I signed these documents without reading them and they were mortgage papers on my apartment. So he spent every cent he could against it. Uh, and when it came to the end of our relationship, um, and he just put his hands up and bad luck pretty much. The roller coaster isn't over for you yet either. Tell me what happens next. So William and I had, um, after we lost all the money for taking everything, we were back to renting and uh, finances were very bad, really tight. But then, stroke of luck was, uh, I was selected for Deal or No Deal and went on that show and won $14,500. So with that, I put a deposit down on a house and lived there for a couple of years. So yeah, that, that was a real turnaround time for me. Funnily enough, just after I'd bought the house, I, I was retrenched from work. And then I was 
offered another job, but it was with a, a Chinese company. And then not long afterwards, I had a, a knock on the door and it was uh, investigators, police investigating as to whether they were importing drugs into the country, which absolutely freaked me out. It's like, how do I keep getting into these situations, you know? I, how do I attract all this, <laughs> all this shit? Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, you know, deal or no deal one minute, drug lords the next. Seriously, looking back in hindsight, through all of this, what would you say was the hardest time for you? I'd say the hardest time was directly after, the, the couple of years directly after the accident was the worst. I, um, from things such as having lost my whole family and then having my virginity taken and then being introduced to drugs, sleeping with this man for money, it got to the point where I despised myself. I hated who I was. I, there was nothing about me that was what it was when I was 15. I was a totally different person and um, I had no self-respect. I had no self-love and um, I was bitterly sad. What was your bottom? Was there a particular moment? No, it was too long to be called a moment. Rock bottom lasted for a long time. Um, I would say rock bottom lasted a good couple of years, in fact. So, no, there was no one day, one week, one month. It was a long time. And then there's a turning point and you meet someone new in your life. And he says something to you the day you're nervously preparing for your first skydive. Can you tell me what he said? <laughs> he said, beyond fear, there is freedom. Meeting him was an absolute turning point for me, for sure. Um, for the first time, I guess I felt that someone loved me for who I was instead of wanting something from me. Um, he didn't try and change me. He, he just loved me for me. But he also introduced me to loving life. So beyond fear, there's freedom was exactly what he said. And that was how he lived. It was um, face challenges, do stuff that frighten you. Um, from that, I started to enjoy life a lot more. I got my motorbike license and, you know, started riding and love the motorbikes. To me, it's like meditation. Being out on the, the open roads, I always have my visor up so I get the wind in my face. And um, just getting out on the open roads and, and around those corners and, yeah, it's like meditation. It's fantastic. When you talk about being on the bike, you seem to be really soaking up the experience. Does this come from having had a hard time or would you say it's something you've always had and rediscovered about yourself? I think that there's different things in my life that happened that made me stop and really appreciate the simple things. And I'll give you some examples. When I was diagnosed with um, early signs of cancer and had to have a hysterectomy, and I felt again like I was being faced with my own mortality. It's frightening. But I think from these whole experiences, you stop and you realise how beautiful the blue sky is, how beautiful the green grass is or the colour of the leaves on the trees. And it's the simple things in life that are the most precious, is my belief. It's not the car you drive, the house you live in, um, 
the, the material things, they, to me, have got no comparison. You lose a close friend, Kev, in a motorbike ride. He's literally killed in a head-on collision in front of you and his bike bursts into flames. And again, you seem to narrowly escape death yourself. You describe this as another life-changing event. Can you tell me, how did this affect you? Oh, I was lucky to have survived the, the boating accident, but the motorbike accident, I shouldn't have, like, I should have been dead. Like, it, it, the investigator said millisecond either side and, um, and my life was over. And that was, Kev was riding right in front of me. We came around a, a, a bend in the road and there was an international driver on the wrong side of the road. I had nowhere to go. I had to go through the fireball, came through the fireball and was on the wrong side of the road, but thankfully there were no cars coming the other way. But the investigators said that, with the millisecond either side, that Kev's body had gone directly in front of my bike, which I could see because his blood was on my bike. So I'd narrowly escaped Kev's body and Kev's bike, one side and the other. How did that affect me, my God? Again, I guess that, that's realising how quickly life can be just over like that. Like, that's how it happened with my family. And from that, it's a matter of really realising that you've got to enjoy every day, appreciate every day that you've got. It doesn't mean life doesn't have its ups and downs because it always will. Um, but that's the beauty of life as well. You have to have your downs to really appreciate your ups. Yes, absolutely. But through this, you realise something. Six months after losing Kev, his son takes his own life. And in this moment, you seem to understand something about how others reacted to your loss. What was that? So after I lost um, our family, it seemed that a lot of our um, family and friends just disappeared, just distanced themselves from our lives. and. Um, and I'd been really confused about that at the time as to how people could just, it just seemed like they walked away from us. But I guess when Kev died and then his son died, I knew I had to call Kev's wife and just let her know I was thinking of it, but I dreaded picking up the phone and talking to her. I, I didn't want to do it. it and it made me realise that that's how other people had felt. And um, having then gone through it and seen it from the other side, it meant I could let go and, and not feel resentful to the people that they had distanced themselves from my life because I could understand it now. I think it's common that we all struggle with knowing what to say when others are facing loss or something difficult. What should we say? I don't know if it's even a matter of, of having to say anything. I think it's possibly more a matter of just letting them know that you're there and that if they ever want to talk, you're there to listen. Uh, I think possibly listening is more important than talking in situations like that. Um, I can tell you what you shouldn't do, and that's uh, say things such as, I know how you feel, because no one knows how you feel. At 12 months afterwards was told that I needed to get over it and move on. What about hearing that you're strong or brave or that you're doing so well? Did people say those sorts of things to you as well? <laughs> uh, no, not initially. I think they were just telling me that, I, you know, the choices I was making were so bad, which is true. <laughs> they were. Yeah. Um, 
people tell me now that I'm, I'm strong. And yes, I'd agree that I have the ability to bounce back from things. Doesn't mean I don't hurt though. I still hurt and, you know, uh, go through difficult times, same as everyone else. I might just look at things differently in that I know that even if I'm hurting today, that there's brighter times ahead and that life is still good. Uh, so I can still look at, you know, for the silver lining in, in situations. Let's talk about how you've changed your relationship with the water. Just months after the accident, you're asked to compete in a swimming carnival at school and anxiety grips you and you can't even compete in the race. But today you're preparing to swim the English Channel. Yes. <laughs> so when did you decide to face the water? So after the accident, I didn't like going near water whatsoever. Even initially being in a bath, being surrounded by water was difficult for me. So I ceased any kind of relationship with the water. I didn't go to the pool, I wouldn't go to the beach. It just wasn't an option. It wasn't even something I thought of. It was that pushed away in my mind. So this gentleman in, uh, challenged me to face my fear and swim the Lawn Peter pub. And initially I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's a great idea. Um, fabulous. And then I hung up the phone and thought, what the fuck? Like, you know, I don't swim. Like, I don't, I don't go near water. But this guy was, was so lovely and I just, I wanted to, I guess, make him proud of me and, and show him that I could do it. So even though it terrified me, I, I started at the pool, which is really bad. I didn't own goggles, bathers, beach towel. I had none of that stuff. <laughs> so that was the first thing was to go and buy those things and then start in the pool. And my anxiety was through the roof. It was only a 25 meter pool but even halfway down one lap, I would be, <gasps> I can't tell you how frightening it was for me. And I'd end up like swimming one lap and then I'd have to take a four minute break. What was the anxiety? Was it the memories of the day you swam or? So um, it was really, yeah, it was really difficult to, to confront that. And it took many months to be able to swim more than just two laps out of 30 freestyle having my head in the water. Still facing your anxiety and fear the whole time you're doing that? For many, many months, many months, yes. I, um, I went to my doctor in the end after about four months and said, uh, can, can I take Valium before I swim? I need something just to, you know, bring down my anxiety levels. And she looked at me as if I was stupid and said, definitely not. And um, so I, I spoke with my friend again, who was mentoring me in relation to, um, my swimming and he suggested that I get down to the open water and start swimming in the open water. Which seems like a strange antidote to struggling in the safety of a pool. But my challenge was to swim the Lawn Peter pub which is yeah. open water so I had to at some stage get into the open water. Did you want to give up at any point? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Every day I didn't want to go to the pool and train but I'd given my promise that I was gonna do it. And as I said, I think I wanted to make him proud of me. So <laughs> I guess that was more important than, than my fear. So I went down to the, I Googled and found an open water swimming group down at Half Moon Bay at Black Rock. And I went down there and, and spoke to the guy that ran it. And I told him a little bit, you know, that I'd lost my family. And so I had a fear of water, but that I'd been challenged to do the Peter pub. I wanted to join the swimming group. And he said to me, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a coach. I will take on your training free of charge. And, I'll, and he said, I will have you prepared 
and you will swim that long Peter pub. I can't believe how generous he has been with his time, um, with his support. He's been incredible. So his name's Peter Hendricks. He swam with me every morning, even throughout winter. It didn't matter. He would be there every morning. And he really worked not just on my swimming capabilities, but on my emotional relationship with the water. So what did change for you working with him in relationship to the water? He worked on my fear with the water and my past representation of the water, which for me was, it took my family. The water killed my family. And he worked on that with me. So, in, and it was just even just some sentences of, when you're in the water, don't think of it, of that it took your family. Look at it, that you're being reunited with your family every time you're out in the water. That was really powerful for me, really powerful. And since then, you've completed a number of open water events. I believe you've even done a night swim. I did. Gosh, the night swim, the first one was very confronting. Well, the whole thing's been a really confronting, you know, experience. But swimming at night again was confronting because it, it brought back all those memories. And it, it almost does take you back there as if you're back there again. And it's little things. It's still, even today, if I'm swimming and there's a bird hovering above me, that takes me back to the night of the accident because on the night of the accident, I had all these birds circling me and screeching, screeching so loudly. And I'm sure they were waiting for the sharks to come and attack because um, there are sharks in the area in Western Port Bay. So every time now that there's a, a bird hovering, I, it takes me back. Susan, you could have stopped there, but you're about to swim the English Channel. How the hell do you end up making a decision like that? Well, after I'd done the Long Peter Pub, my next challenge then was to do the rip swim, which is across the heads from Point Nepean to Point Lonsdale. I think that section of water has sunk many ships and claimed many lives. So completing that was another moment where I remember being at Point Lonsdale and looking back at Point Nepean and thinking, oh my God, look how far you've come. Like not just the distance of swimming, but how far I'd come in myself and my journey in life. And, you know, undertaking these challenges has, I guess, made me a happier person. You know, I'm confronting my fears. Um, I'm letting go of shit. So with the challenge of the English Channel, I had finished the rip swim yep. and I thought, well, what do I do now? Do I still get up at every, every morning at quarter past, half past five and, and, and swim at sunrise? Or is there any point to it now, now that I've completed my challenge? And I realised that I really need challenge in my life for motivation and to have something to look forward to, to have goals, you know. And so I, I rang my coach and said, do you think there's any possibility I'd be able to swim the English Channel in a relay, you know, would I have the capability? And he's like, okay, all right, we'll start training tomorrow. And that was it. So um, I got into training and, and formed a team and I've got a fabulous team. I just love the people in my team. So how long does it take you all to swim the English Channel? I guess anywhere between about 12 and 15 hours. Um, the distance is about 35 kilometres if you could swim a straight line, but because you can't with currents and all sorts of stuff, it's yeah. closer to 50 kilometres. There's four of us in the team and we'll possibly start in the dark. Could be two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning even that we start the swim, uh, depending on the conditions at the time. And it's an hour in. So one person is in for an hour, then the next person for an hour, and we rotate. So I'll possibly swim for about three or four hours altogether and swim around 12 kilometres myself. So 
what comes after the English Channel for Susan Berg? I think I'll continue my swimming, but it's the next step up. So it might be doing Rot Nest, which is a 19, 20 kilometre swim. And I'll go from there. I mean, ultimate goal, wouldn't it be amazing to do a solo swim of the channel? Or um, there's, there's so many great different challenging swims around the world that who knows where it'll go. But at least now I feel like I've made peace with it all. I feel like I've made peace with the experience on the night of the accident and I've made peace with the water. For more information or to subscribe, please go to thebottomup.com.au. The Bottom Up, helping lighten the load, entertain and connect through conversation.